Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. Hello, and welcome to the Venture Fuel Visionaries podcast. I am your host, Fred Schonberg. I'm the founder of Venture Fuel. And I'm so excited for you to be here today to listen to this conversation uh, with Anju Ahuja. Anju is the Vice President of Product Strategy and Insights at Cable Labs, where she established and led the Product, Future Markets, and Insights team. For those of you that don't know, Cable Labs is the leading innovation and R&D lab for the cable industry. Its state-of-the-art research and innovation facility, coupled with its collaborative ecosystem of thousands of vendors, enables Cable Labs to invent new ways to keep people connected by making broadband faster and more responsive, reliable and secure, cementing the cable network as the platform of choice for enjoying incredible experience in entertainment and connectivity. If you think about how we all communicate with each other, how we enjoy content, how we capture news, all of that is happening over cable. Uh, and this is sort of the forefront of what is happening in that space. Today, we talk about things like light fields, 10G. Uh, we, we get out into the frontier of what's there, but also there's a lot of really interesting learnings on how you can bring that back to today to look out at that moonshot, but also take some jump shots along the way. Uh, Anju and her teams have innovated multi-billion dollar offerings in the past. They're really at the forefront of emerging technologies, decision science, and consumer insights to create these game-changing products. Uh, So please join me in welcoming Anju, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for having me, Fred. It's a pleasure. It is so nice uh, to have you here. I'm excited to chat. I've been looking forward to this since we first uh, you know, spoke a couple of weeks back. So one of the things that I came across while doing research for our conversation was your origin story. So can you tell us uh, that story? Because I thought it was pretty awesome to level set us. Sure, sure. So one part of the story will probably not be so unusual in Silicon Valley. Um, when I was very young, my parents were huge consumers of sci-fi. So I got exposed to a lot of science fiction very early. I think what is different, and I can now say this looking back at the time, I never would have been able to assess this about myself. But what's different is the lens that they applied to it and how that sort of allowed me to think a little bit more broadly about what the art of the possible is. And by that, I mean, they came from a country where, you know, they would read about things that were in sci-fi before moving to the United States. And it would be, you know, in some print you know, newspaper type format, and they would use their imagination to try to understand what that would actually look like, what it would feel like if they actually experienced it live instead of reading about it. And when they came to this country, it was almost like a leapfrog of technology. And so what they taught me as they became more technical in their own trades was this notion of if you think linearly, you're never going to do anything all that impressive. You should think about technology in an exponential manner and not think about it as constrained because they had experienced the constraints being blown away, but instead think about it as the problem that is the most distant is actually the most attractive to solve. And if you just start with that problem way out there and don't think about what you have as capabilities today, you will automatically build a path to it. 
So it was, it was sort of fascinating because it just allows you to have more limitless thinking. And I think uh, I, I'm less likely to tell myself no as a result. I'm also less likely to say, you know, to listen to no's. I think when they come my way, I'm always looking for, well, all right, I know that looks really challenging, but what are we going to do about that? I feel like normally I want to set up cable labs. I'm going to come back to all that because I love what you just said. And and I'm curious, one challenge is, I'll say the limitless possibilities or the art of the possible, looking at the moonshot, right? The, The big challenge worthy of solving. You're working with lots of different big companies that need to deliver more immediate shot, uh, like, you know, jump shots instead of moonshots. They need to see some sort of results. How do you balance that desire to, to go for the big problem with the need for more immediate wins to justify the investment in, in shooting for the moon? Yeah. So that's actually a really good question. So to calibrate on that, First of all, my goal is always to do what's right for the users and for the people that are creating new services and experiences for users. And that allows me to be very centered on different timeframes. So I might look at zero to three with a very different lens than three to eight, very different lens than, you know, eight plus. And, and I try to dial it back based on what I need to do and execute against based on what's about to impact a user, you know, in that given time frame. So when we think about the metaverse, I think about it as a continuum of extended reality, immersive experiences. Not all of it is going to come to fruition at once, and some of it may never come to fruition. But what's going to matter in the next few years? What's going to matter a few years out from there? What do I need to be solving for in terms of network capabilities, et cetera? I would say our members are you know, very open-minded when it comes to new technologies, if they think it really does advance the experience of users on the network, and if it advances their ability to satisfy a variety of different ecosystem players that want to take advantage of operator networks around the world. And I can get into a little bit more context around what the lab is, if that helps. Yeah, I would love that, actually. That would be good so people understand uh, who, who is looking into the future with you. Sure, sure. So we're a member-funded lab. We are funded by telcos and cable companies around the world, so including mobile network operators. My team in particular focuses on the far end of the innovation horizon. So we tend to be really five years plus in our orientation, often 10 years plus, and then dialing it back in, as I mentioned. We are very user-centric by design. So we have three teams. The I think you mentioned all three of them. One is user behavior and economics, which is empirical research on what users are really doing on the network. The second is future markets and insights. That's a consumer insights team that looks at what users say they want. And again, we calibrate with, okay, you say you want this, but what are you actually doing? And the third team, is around ecosystem development for emerging technologies. And that allows us to work with players in various verticals that are creating new user experiences and figuring out from there, what does that mean for network capabilities and what will be required in the future? And we take all of this intelligence and work collaboratively with our member product, marketing, strategy teams, the network planners to say, here's what we're studying and seeing and hearing Here's what we can project that means going a little bit further out. And by the way, we've worked with these sets of technologists to solve for some of these future problems with these capabilities that we built in the lab and our members get access to it royalty-free. That is very cool. It's so interesting being in the innovation space with you and seeing as you spend more time in it, all of a sudden you start to realize there are these almost ebbs and flows, right? And you mentioned the metaverse and we have a lot of big clients that say, oh, that sounds interesting. What is it? I had one person literally asked me where the door was to the metaverse. Uh, which I thought was a great question. <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, it's a little more nuanced. But I was thinking about this scene sort of chat GPT, yep. open AI, you know, sort of it's hit mainstream media the past month or so. And people are like, oh, now I get it. Now I get AI. Now I get 
you know, the chat functionality and all this natural language and what it really means. And it's like, well, we've been talking about that for 15 years, right? And so right. how do you balance that? You know, you're seeing stuff with a tremendous perspective uh, and also that long-term horizon. How do you help unlock that in the immediate for folks that maybe throughout their day are not looking quite so far out? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll, I'll be honest, there's no one recipe for getting this part of it right. You do have to create a compelling business case. You do need to show a return on investment. You do need to actually prove that what you're going to do is instrumental, not just to solving a near-term problem or not even near-term, but an actual problem that the operator will experience if you know the problem doesn't go solved. But you're better off actually shooting for a broader, more holistic story that says, if you do this, all of these other ecosystem players are going to build upon that capability, which makes your networks have a different level of longevity than what you would have if you only solved for what you think is relevant for the user in a more narrow context. So, and I think a lot of our, a lot of the people that have been in this industry are believers in the future, right? They've always believed in the ability to do powerful things by moving data in certain ways. And a lot of them are very technical and very technical in their entertainment, not just in their uh, work so to speak. So you have a bunch of champions that are just looking for the right cause to go and champion. And so for us, the the goal is to make sure we articulate that opportunity in a quantified and very well-characterized manner so that it's easy for them to distill it and understand what that means for their product and business strategies. And you know, if you show the ROI, most players are rational. They're going to do what makes sense for their business and for their customers. Absolutely. Can you talk about maybe a few examples of either technologies or products that, that you all have uh, innovated uh, within the labs? Yeah, sure. So although my title says product, I should say I focus on members' products. Um, so I don't actually create products that we ship. We create technologies that they can fold into their product roadmap as they see fit. Probably a good example would be, and I can't believe it started six years ago, but six years ago, we were looking at what might happen in a world of immersive media. And we were thinking about things like extended reality, VR and AR. And we were trying to understand you know, what we can learn about what that might entail. And in doing so, we studied the gaming ecosystem because it was very real. It was you know, growing. We had lots of examples of different game experiences that we could model. And we started to look at, in particular, online games. I should clarify, it was all online. And in doing that, we thought, you know, if we could reduce latency, that would really change the experience. And so just to not geek out on latency for a minute, but just just thinking of it as making an interactive application so much more responsive to the user. And if you talk to gamers, you'll hear stories like, oh my God, my character just teleported or I got shot. I didn't even see who was shooting at me and the game's over. And it's very frustrating for gamers when lag creates situations like this. So we ended up going down the path of creating low latency doxis which has been written about now publicly, so I can talk about it. We're actually doing interops in the labs with a large set of platform players and gaming ecosystem companies. The point of low latency DOCSIS or the end effect is to reduce round-trip latency in the DOCSIS network to sub-5 milliseconds at the 99th percentile. And that's for non-queue building applications. So it's a huge win for game companies to be able to take advantage of a technology like this and not have to spend their product development budget doing these network workarounds around unpredictable lag, but instead having something that is characterized differently, that is much more managed in terms of latency and develop products around that instead. And it's obviously great for users. This is not just important for gaming. This will be important for any interactive application. That's so interesting. Gaming seems to be a a very robust world to which to learn from and to test things on that then apply to so many different things within entertainment, media, 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I love about the gaming ecosystem is the users in that environment are generally power users in most other areas of technology. So yeah. at least when it comes to media and entertainment. So we can learn a lot from how they consume, how they behave, what their pain points are, and we can project out often from them what we think are likely to be mainstream issues for other types of users down the road. Very interesting. One of the things I, I, I thought about is you have this incredible ecosystem of collaborators across all different parts of that ecosystem. And with that comes tremendous opportunity, but also sort of a lot of cooks in the kitchen, right? And so I'm curious, can you talk about that dynamic, maybe the pros and cons? Because uh, I, I think with any big change, you need to get more than one company in the room. And so I love the, the model. I'm just curious about that dynamic and what you can talk about there. Well, in one sense, I think we're very lucky because our you know, our guiding principle is to be vendor neutral. It's very important for us to be collaborative on a level playing field with everybody. So yes. we really open the doors wide open and say, if you want to work with us, we're happy to teach you about what we're working on. We're more than happy to learn from you and learn what actually matters to you and figure out how that should impact our innovation agenda. And I think we're very open with all of our external partners to say, hey, you teach us what ever you can about what you think you need from the network. We'll go back, figure out how to solve for some of those problems so you don't have to allocate your development budget to it. And then we'll work collaboratively on testing whether or not that's actually working out over time. We actually have a 10G lab where we have a multitude of access technologies, network access technologies. So we can actually work with other players over the suite of technologies and say, how would your product perform? As if we were mimicking a real world deployment of it later. So there are things like that that I think create value for our external partners. It is obviously, you know, it's a relationship where you have to create currency on both sides. So we have to be able to take something out of the relationship where we can learn how to advance our networks for our users. They'll probably want to learn how their product is performing on our networks. And so that shared agenda is, is a very transparent one. Which visibility do different companies need into the network or different applications need? How do you optimize data flows? What are going to be user-related issues that are going to come up over time? How can we automate responses to that, et cetera? I could go down a rabbit hole on that one. Tell me where you want to probe. No, no, I love it. I think it's great. And I mean, I love the idea of creating currency for all involved. Uh, and it kind of leads me to a question from your background where you spent time in finance, venture capital. And I'm curious how that background serves you in your current role. Are there any learnings from that world that you apply to your current job and mission? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I would start by saying this was not a planned career progression for me to end up in the space that I'm in. I was actually pretty rooted in finance and private equity and venture capital for the first decade of my career. And then, you know, I started to see the beginnings of what I thought would be a transformation in media. And, you know, it was really the time where like print newspapers were still a thing, like yeah. a big thing. And I just started thinking that the future for immersive media was going to be around the corner and that there was more than just video that we could experience, you know, content through, that there would be other agents for information exchange. There would be other ways to participate in content. And I literally mean participate in an interactive way in content. And so I wanted to get smart on media. And the firm that I was working with at the time, I'd become a partner. It, they were investing in technology, but it was largely, you know, business services, software, you know, not stuff that was remotely close to the media space. And frankly, it was a pretty small fund. So, you know, our ability to have impact was constrained by how much capital we had. So I, I made the leap into media and I thought, well, okay, if I want to go work in this space, I got to get smart on it or at least smarter than having no smarts on it. So I thought, okay, great way to learn is to consult to a bunch of companies that were backed by other VCs that I knew that were in media. And so 
learned a lot over the next several years. I My first client was actually an MMO that was based out of South Korea. So it was a very cool company and they were locating their game in the United States. That was actually very informative. They had a great game engine that was pretty cutting edge at the time. So I learned a lot about how online games work. But back to your point, as I sort of think about how have I leveraged my background in corporate strategy from BCG and my background in finance, there are several ways that I actually fall back on those skills. First, I always have to make a case internally that a problem is worth solving and that the tech is actually worth investing in and that our technologist's time is worth allocating to solving that problem. So making that business case involves a lot of the fundamentals of almost pitching a new product or a startup to you know a board or to a set of VCs. So I use a lot of those principles in there. Secondly, I have to go convince the network operators around the world that it's worth investing in adding this technology to their roadmap, that it's worth what it's going to mean for network planning, which is a, you know, sometimes that can be a heavy lift, making big changes in the network. Sometimes it's simpler, but in any case, it's a lot of work. It's not just sort of a, you flip a switch and it's done. There's a lot of careful thinking that goes into how to upgrade a network. So I have to make a business case there and it's for a very different audience than my internal audience. And then thirdly, I have to go out to a broader ecosystem and convince those companies to leverage our capabilities so that our Our networks perform well, but also their products perform better as a result of it. And that was very true, as I mentioned, for low latency docs with the gaming ecosystem and other ecosystems on top of that. And then finally, this is more of a philosophical note, but you know, in venture, you think a lot about markets, right? Spinning up a market, bringing a market to a point where it's actually very nascent stage to something that's more mature and more settled over time. And when you think about that, I apply that kind of, I would say, skill set outlook, philosophy to innovations in the sense that if your innovation is really strong, it's because other people have invented on top of it. That's what creates that lasting longevity. That's what creates that multiplier impact. So for me, I think a lot about innovations the way I think about markets and bringing those markets to life. That's super, super interesting. I mean, one of of the things we talk about internally is you'll see in this sort of startup ecosystem, you've got AWS for startups, Salesforce for startups, HubSpot for startups, Google for startups, right? And uh, my team asked the question, why? And I said, well, obviously, like if you build something on top of Salesforce or HubSpot, you're going to stay on it, right? It's sticky. Uh, you're, you're getting this opportunity to build. And by the way, that now makes Salesforce and HubSpot more valuable to larger companies. Right. And I think it's a really interesting model that a lot of people don't think about is if you have people building on top of your tech or your company, what that does for you long-term and it validates it. So I think it's brilliant. And obviously at much bigger scale, when you start talking about uh, cable networks or telcos. Um, so super interesting. On that note, I, I'd love your take on, you know, what are your thoughts around internal innovation, you know, doing something within, within a large organization, uh, you know, the, the old school R and D, right. The skunk works underneath the the parent company versus external innovation, whether that is, a lab like yourself, whether that is working with startups, just just curious from your time, both at, at BCG and what you're doing now, you know, what's your lens on that, that maybe the pros and cons? Yeah, that's, uh, so it's an interesting juxtaposition. I'll start by saying all innovation done well is good. And there is no one way to do it. So both internal and external are very relevant. I think it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve and the technology you're trying to work with. Because those two things, I think, and and also the expertise, the talent that you have, that I think often determines how best to go about solving the problem and whether you should be doing it internally, whether you should be 
following more of a co-innovation strategy, whether you should look to buy the answer to that solution by resourcing another organization to develop the, the solution for you. So it really does depend on your objectives and resources. I will come out and say that I think one of the um, one of the greatest killers for potential innovations is mediocrity in leadership and thinking and frankly, decision by committee. Decision by committee is pretty much a disaster. It's a way to take a very compelling technology or concept and dilute it to the point where it becomes something a lot less provocative, a lot less compelling, but more tolerant or more tolerated by people's risk levels. And it's usually the most risk averse that are bringing that crowd in or the people that fundamentally just don't see the vision but still are in the decision-making set. And really, if you don't see the vision, either you could ask a bunch of questions to try to make people smarter about what's wrong with the vision or how to improve it. But if you just don't see it and you don't grok it, you might want to recuse yourself from yeah. deciding whether or not that technology should come to market. And I think that level of discipline is not always there. And, and that's easy for me to say, because when the engineers start getting into a deeply technical mode, I just assume, I have faith that they are going to do the right thing. I'm not an engineer, so I'm not going to be able to sit there and add value to whether or not you know, the architecture actually makes sense. I know that. And I think to some extent, we need to have that same discipline applied to how we think about doing things in the market, that whether or not the people that are actually specialists on the market see it and believe it, there's probably something there, even if the engineers maybe are not fully on board at that moment. It's interesting. Uh, I was involved in a conversation where some folks were essentially saying, we need a consensus. And that phrase was said a few times. And I was like, I don't think so. I think we need an argument. Like let's, you know, coming to the the middle is not necessarily the answer, especially in this work, right? You want to push it. Uh, Yeah. And and I think you want, you want one or two internal executive sponsors that champion it, that are accountable for whether or not it succeeds. And I think leadership teams need to orient themselves around, it's okay if there's some failures, but at least we're going to move quickly. We're going to be agile. And you know, we trust our executives, right? We trust them to make informed decisions and we trust them to be accountable when they make bad decisions. But I, I think that's just a much more fluid way of operating and it allows for a lot more agility and creativity. I love it. Well, so let's do this. This is your, your job all the time. Let's peer out 10 years. Okay. How has technology in the world changed in ways that might surprise us, knowing that you can't share all the amazing things you guys are working on, but just the average person listening to this, what do you think they're going to wake up 2032 and, and be surprised about the world? Oh my gosh, you have so much to look forward to. It's you know, I hope I'm around to see it. But you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting advancements in technology that are, I think there are, there's a confluence of them that you can expect in the near future. And that's even as powerful as each of the, in, the distinct technologies themselves. So I'd start by saying light fields are coming. You may not you know, have a light field experience over the internet in your home in the next year or two. But you know, several years out, you will see a lot more light field experiences. You can probably go find them in theme parks sooner rather than later. I do think you're going to see a lot more in extended reality on the so-called metaverse continuum, the way I like to think about it. And I think you'll see it in all aspects of your life. I think it'll start in gaming and entertainment, but it'll move into other forms of media. I can see it being very relevant for the news, very relevant for marketing in certain areas. I think augmented reality might be big and enterprise first. And that's not sort of a surprise by way of conjecture. I think a lot of people believe that. But I think what that means is people have to become more literate in technologies like this in order to do their job, not just for corporate training, but to actually execute against your day-to-day activities. I think you're going to be using a lot more extended reality technologies in your day-to-day problem solving. 
And I think there's a lot more that will happen with networks and how powerful they're going to become and how efficient they will be and the convergence of these networks that allows for data to move smoothly from one environment to another. And that allows applications to perform better on an end-to-end basis. So I see a lot of promise in all of these things. And I see, you know, this is probably not that much of a surprise, but it's really beautiful when you see it in action. The people that are really looking to advance technology in these areas are deeply inspired and passionate about it. Yeah. It's not a day job for them. It's it's something that they sort of go to sleep at night, you know, and hold that vision tight as if it's like a waking dream. And then they wake up in the morning and they execute against it. And I know that's true for my team and myself, but, you know, we're not the only people that think like this. There's a lot of people working on all of these things that are equally devoted and dedicated to big outcomes. So I think that's a lot to be excited about too. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Well, Anju, I, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, it's been delightful and insightful. Where can people go to learn more about you or Cable Labs? I'm happy to shoot over some links. Uh, Cable Labs does have some white papers that are publicly available. So if you go to cablelabs.com, you might find some stuff there that might be interesting. We're, we have blogs that talk about some of our technologies that are more geared towards a, a lay audience. So I would say those are some good places to start. And then, you know, I would encourage any of your listeners, if there's anything that they want to explore more deeply, they are welcome to reach out to me through you or through Bo and you know someone else on your team. I'm not great at cold introductions, but I'm very good about following up with anybody that's verified that you know somebody else can vouch for. I'm more than happy to have a conversation. And I love to help entrepreneurs you know, achieve their big, their big high impact goals. So anything I can do to help, more than happy to do so. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much. Well, I think we covered a lot. Thank you. Wow, what a great conversation. From light fields to 10G, I feel like Anju covered it all. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen. If you enjoyed this, please share this with any colleagues you think might find it interesting. As always, if you could go to Venture Fuel on LinkedIn, that's the best place to find us, find other speakers, other episodes, events that we are running. Our goal is to be your one-stop shop to find what's next in corporate innovation and how you can apply it to your large organization. So I'm glad you enjoyed it and look forward to the next episode. We spoke a little bit about 10G, both at the beginning and the end of the episode, as well as in some of our communications. If you would be interested in learning more about 10G, you can go to cablelabs.com or you can reach out to us at VentureFuel and we'll connect you over with Anju. Thanks so much for listening. 